This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today we have a very special episode, an interview with Judith Stacy from New York University. Professor Stacy is a major figure in the sociology of marriage, and she is being interviewed by a very special guest host, Philip Cohen from the University of Maryland, College Park. You're not going to want to miss this. Hello, I'm Philip Cohen. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland in College Park. I'm delighted to have a chance to be a guest host on the Annex Sociology podcast and interview someone I've always wanted to interview, the sociologist Judith Stacy. Judith Stacy is a professor emeritus at NYU, New York University. She was formerly on the faculty at the University of California, Davis, and the University of Southern California. Uh, and she was, among other things, the co-founder of the Council on Contemporary Families, uh, the author of many articles uh, and books going back to the 1970s, including most recently the book Unhitched, Love, Marriage, and Family Values from West Hollywood to Western China. Uh, she was the winner of the Jesse Bernard Award from the American Sociological Association for uh, sociologists who study fully the role of women in society. One of the people who made me want to be a sociologist in the 1990s, Judith Stacy. welcome to the NX Sociology Podcast. Well, thank you. That was a lovely introduction. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so uh, I, I, I just- I will mention one other honor because it'll be relevant to one of the things that we're going to talk about, I think, um, which was the, the last, one of the last awards I got was um, the Lifetime Achievement Award from surprisingly the sexuality section of the American Sociological Association. And that's relevant to the trajectory of the progression of feminism and gender studies from women's studies in the early days till the more contemporary period. Mm -hmm. From family studies to, I guess, family and sexuality studies. Exactly. Um, that's great. Um, so, but let me back you up and just sort of ask you to tell me um, the story of how your career started. Right. Well, I am of the first generation of gender or women's studies scholars, and uh, and they're the cohort um, that became that went from activism to the academy. Some people were already in the academy and shifted their work from more traditional areas in whichever discipline they were in to a focus on at that point women um, and um, but I was actually one of the people who got interested in getting a PhD in sociology because of first becoming an activist so um, it was actually feminism that led me to my academic career rather than the other way around I'd had some graduate training in other things and in fact had been a and there too was earlier work in the civil rights movement that led me to get a master's degree in black history, then it was called Negro history. Um, so I think I've been influenced more by the social movements and then gotten interested in studying them more seriously. So what made you um, uh, decide on a course into the academic discipline of sociology away from black history? Well, um, I actually had gone from black history to, I was working on a PhD in uh, education at University of Chicago on history education because uh, I had done an MA in uh, history but it was um, really um, at, and I had been a high school teacher and so at that time it was a lot about reforming the um, secondary school curriculum and history and all that had my interest but um, it was as the rebellion of 
women, those of us in some of the social movements of the 1960s at the way women were being treated and that kind of click factor that feminists talk about of seeing the world differently through gender that led me to get really interested in some of the origin questions about gender subordination and decided that I wanted to switch fields and um, switch my doctoral program. And, um, it, and I applied both an anthropology and sociology programs and had a hard time choosing between the two. And in fact, the sociology that I wound up doing is quite ethnographic and, so, and anthropological. I was interested in contemporary societies, but from a more ethnographic point of view. And very theoretical, if I'm not mistaken, your dissertation is a, is a theoretical treatment of women, the family and revolution, not getting the title exactly right, but, but very That's theoretical right. also. You're, you're right, it was called Patriarchy and Socialist Revolution in China. So it was actually not even specifically about women. From the beginning, I never studied women only as women. I always studied gender as a structure and in relationship to men and then later in relationship to sexuality and diverse family forms, all of that. Um, uh, I, I looked at the, the first couple of pages of your dissertation. It says you took a guided women's rights tour in China. That must have been in the late 70s. How did that come about? That was, well, in the late 70s, which is when I was working on my dissertation and working on China only through secondary research. I was never a China scholar in the sense that I never studied Chinese or went to any Chinese studies programs or whatever. So it was kind of one of those chutzpah dissertations that Brandeis <laughs> at that period tended to uh, produce because of various things about that program then. But in any case, um, it was almost impossible to visit. I just wanted to visit China because I'd been reading about so much. And I was of the generation that were kind of mesmerized by, you know, somewhat exaggerated and probably romanticized claims about women hold up half the sky from China and all of that. Um, so, you know, we're talking about a period of, that was a period of um, land reform and then the uh, cultural revolution in China. And the reports that were filtering out were obviously glorified and all. But I just felt like I wanted to see China, even though I wasn't studying, able to study the contemporary period and couldn't speak Chinese. And it was almost impossible to go to China in that period. You had to go through an organized tour. And the tour that I went through was organized by the U.S., by the women's section of the U.S.-China Friendship Association at that period. It was basically the only way I could go. Well, it was a time, um, you mentioned the cohort of feminists who became academics right. um, from this period, but it certainly was a time when China, you know, the idea of sort of fundamentally changing society and using words like revolution was very much um, in, the, in the air at that time. Exactly. And, you know, and I was of the generation that was caught up in some of that, you know, the, the anti-Vietnam War generation, the um, civil rights, and then the early feminist, um, many of those movements, and then ultimately the gay liberation movement followed on the heels of feminism very quickly. So yeah, revolution, or at least that concept, was very much bandied about in that period. And, and I was in a group, there were a number of um, study groups and organized groups. There was one, I was a member of one of the so-called Marxist feminist um, discussion groups that had a lot of scholars in it, some now very prominent. At that time, some were early in their careers, others were graduate students, and there were different groups. And so China was very much in everyone's mind 
um, Cuba and China. And China at that time, people had hopes that, you know, it would turn out differently from Russia. Well, it did, but in different, different ways. <laughs> and that, you know, feminism wouldn't be quashed, that uh, women were going to be equal members. That didn't turn out to be true, but, but there certainly was a lot of interesting things happening. And so that was why I, got, I was interested in it was really theoretically that I was interested in China. I was interested in China because of the dramatic transformation of their family system from a deeply patriarchal Confucian extended family system to what actually became more like the modern nuclear family, interestingly, which was exactly the family system that feminists were rebelling against in the US and in Euro-American societies at that time. Um, I wanna just pause a little bit on this just to, um... You know, one of the things I want to bring us around to is sort of, you know, the discipline today or, or feminism and academia today. But I just want to pause a little and, and just think about um, you as a, as a graduate student um, in a time when the, you know, it's not I want to talk about it like it's another world, but sociology was about one third, about one third of the uh, people getting PhDs in the 70s were women in sociology. Um, it's a lot more now up over 60 percent. Right. Uh, and the idea of I'm going to travel all the way around the world to a country that I where I can't speak the language that's going through a tremendous um, uh, revolutionary period. And uh, I mean, you use the word chutzpah to describe this, but I think it's a certain kind of courage. Oh, well, it was probably a mixture of the two. I think naivete is probably a stronger element and lack of guidance. I Brandeis, that's a whole other story, but Brandeis in that period was a very bizarre um, doctoral program. It had been kind of wrapped by the 60s, and it was pretty hard to get regular classes. And it was one of the only departments that I've ever heard of where you couldn't even study statistics if you wanted to. I didn't want to. Um, I had the same, you know, anti-quantitative prejudice that a lot of us did in that period. I regret some of that now. But anyway, um, but it didn't even offer it. And it was much more theory-oriented and historically-oriented. But it also had been kind of taken over by um, a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of new-agey um, psychological things. There were a lot of people on the faculty who were involved in things like co-counseling. And that was Maurice Stein, that were basically more interested in therapy than they were in um, what they what had brought us to study with them. We wanted to study community sociology with Maurice Stein, and he wanted to hold hands and say oh, new and good. <laughs> and, uh, so, and anyway, so it was a very strange period there. And so you had to be courageous or independent to get your way through it. There also were almost no requirements, um, which led to people taking forever to finish instead of getting out easy. <laughs> you had to form a committee, just even getting the committee to meet was an ordeal. And um, kind of present yourself for accreditation. And it was very strange. Anyway, it did foster a lot of very independent work, as well as a lot of, um, you know, depression and people falling away and things like that. Well, um, so, so the work, some of the work that, um, that you did that came out of this, um, you know, theoretically addressed questions that are still, uh, th that became, uh, that sort of blossomed into, in some ways, what became intersectionality later. So, yeah, exactly. so your writing was about class and patriarchy, capitalism and feminism, uh, cap uh, socialism and feminism, capitalism and patriarchy. <laughs> I, I wonder, so so you finished your dissertation and you entered the academy um, as on the tenure track at UC Davis. In 1979. In 79. So what was, 
it like to be uh, in the academy on working on those issues at that time? Was it um, did you was it an outsider status or was this uh, what everybody was talking about? Well, first of all, I have to say that during graduate school, there were there was no one to teach us. We were self-taught. In other words, there was no one on the faculty who had done work in the area that we were working in. Um, and so we had study groups or we would audit courses around the area. I audited a Scotch Bowls course on revolution. It was very much a self-taught enterprise because there were no, I mean, there were a few senior women here and there, um, but there was no one that we were, that had been doing what we're doing and what we were beginning to do and who were there to guide us or teach us. So, it was, we were inventing a field really. And at the beginning you could know everything because there was so little literature. So we could be very interdisciplinary and we were. So I was in study groups from the get-go with people in history and anthropology and you know, sometimes psychology, whatever. And we were, you know, we were all kind of building, uh, we were building what ultimately became a discipline. We didn't know that then, you know, but, um, and so that was going on in all of the different disciplines. There were different groups of, feminists who were pushing against the traditional disciplines and both in terms of changing the subject literally but also in changing the lens and um and i was interested in both of those your engagement then with the with the disciplines you know you you know no one's exactly born a sociologist so you have the set of experiences that brings you into right. um at the time was a, you know, a, a more flourishing discipline, I suppose, than it is now. Um, and you trained your lens on the discipline itself. I was looking at a few um, things you wrote in the 80s, uh, uh, in particular, um, The Missing Feminist Revolution in Sociology. Um, it was interesting to read, um, to read this now, writing with Barry Thorne, I guess that's one of the people that you're, you're right. talking about. Um, I have just one quote from that. Um, and, uh, I'm curious what you were thinking. Uh, Feminists have made important contributions to sociology, but we have yet to transform the basic conceptual frameworks of the field. That's 1985. And, you know, uh, how do you how do you feel like um, that went over at the time? And what were you what were you trying to accomplish? Um, well, it's, it was really interesting. I mean, uh, that that paper emerged out of a talk I was asked to give at the National Women's Studies Association. And I called on Barry, who was a new friend at the time. She had, she had been at Brandeis, but before me, we didn't overlap there. I'd met her, but, but she was out at Stanford or Santa Cruz at the period as a visiting professor. And, we had be, and she had joined a study group that met sometimes in my place in the Bay Area. That was when I was at UC Davis. So I basically called her up and interviewed her for this talk, you know, to get just to, so it started out just as a kind of a discussion I, I have a uh, maxim that I call the Stacy rule of the inverse relationship between effort and reward. <laughs> and uh, what I mean by that is that uh, some of my articles have gotten, and some which were not nearly as challenging to produce, have gotten so much more attention and influence than my books. You know? <laughs> and, um, and that was certainly that, that article had enormous impact on at least conversation not only in sociology, but in, you know, we basically compared a bunch of the disciplines, the different, what we thought that it was just really an opinion piece, though we did you know, a lot of reading for it and we interviewed a lot of colleagues, but um, in different fields. But it was just our assessment of what the relationship had become between feminism and the traditional disciplines in the fields that we knew. It provoked um, 
I, I think it had a good impact, actually. I'm not sure, but it certainly made a lot of faculty begin to um, think about why they weren't teaching feminist theory at all in their theory courses. I mean, so sometimes it just led to tokenism of a little bit being tacked on, but I think that's probably a little bit better than nothing. And that article became the subject of an enormous number of, I mean, it's probably been cited more than all my other works together, I don't know. Um, and it also got revisited a number of times. We were asked to do an update like 10 years later of what we thought had happened since then. And then Michael Burwoy, um uh, weighed in. He, there was something in a theory section where, you know, he kind of celebrated feminism's impact and also uh, there was like a 20 year later, you know, kind of postmortem on it too. So do you feel like, you know, um, from that, from that period and the sort of the momentum that you and your cohort brought into academia from this right. energy outside, um, you know, when we look at the discipline of sociology now, um, do you think the, is what we have now that we have established sort of a feminist pole within the discipline or has the, has the core of the discipline been, um, been changed or has it opened, just opened up to allow sort of a feminist section? That's a wonderful question and I'd love to hear what you think about it now that I've been out of the academy pretty much for the last uh, six years. But um, I'm not really sure. I mean, you know, what I came to believe and wrote about this and even spoke at an ASA about it at one point is that the traditional disciplines are themselves institutions that don't make sense conceptually anymore. They're atavisms from the 19th century, but they have institutional power and that includes social power. And so they structure people's intellectual lives in ways, even if it's not the way that one would automatically want to go. Um, it's really hard to say what the dividing line is these days between anthropology and sociology if you're not working in archaeology, you know, or why four fields of archaeology and linguistic, you know, why those belong together in one discipline. And in some universities now they don't. Um, and there are, and there was a period when anthropology and sociology were combined in some British universities, and I believe even at Brandeis way before my time, and then they got separated. I don't think feminism in the end transformed the discipline so much as it had a profound impact on many of the disciplines and it certainly transformed the demographics of the university <laughs> in the way you described you know that women came to dominate a number of well the humanities in particular and sociology and anthropology cultural anthropology and maybe even history um, so it, it definitely changed a lot of that and you can see you know, even in the fields that were hard rock masculine, you saw real impact, but they weren't changed as much. So every field, I think, began to feel obliged to have at least some people paying attention to gender. But I don't know that it transformed the underlying concepts of the discipline itself. What about the climate? I don't know if you're comfortable discussing this, but as far as, you know, going from a, a smaller minority to now, um, closer to parity in the discipline, but also just all the cultural change that's gone on. Um, what, what do you think about that? What do you think about the climate, um, especially for women and maybe especially for feminists in academia? You know, um, I again, I'm not up to date on that, um, but I would say it certainly became much more comfortable and much more normal. I mean, to have a woman chair is just 
conventional now, you know, that is not a big deal. Uh, you know, in sociology in particular, you know, there have probably been more women presidents. I don't know, I haven't tracked it of the ASA. And I mean, so certainly things became more comfortable and there was closer to parity. And I think, you know, there was some backlash, obviously, as well among, there were some men who really resented what they saw as sort of a feminization of the field. So uh, maybe we should switch gears a little and talk about families. Sure. The, uh, I suppose this goes in the category of the Stacy rule, um, but certainly one of the more famous um, essays you wrote was um, uh, Good Riddance uh, to the Family, but, but that came out of books and uh, work that you did about Brave New Families was a book. Right. Um, and um, I, I wonder if that was, do you see that as having continued the process of bringing feminism into uh, a new area in terms, of, in terms of family studies, which was a little different from what you had been working on before? Well, the thing that was, I mean, I was interested in family from the get-go and, um, and my China work was connected to family, but in a broad historical theoretical vein, I studied the transformation of the Confucian feudal patriarchal system into a, um, what I called new democratic patriarchy, playing with the concept, Mao's concept of our new democracy. It was about both democratization of patriarchy in the sense of making family life available to masses of peasant men who during the agrarian crisis couldn't remotely achieve it, but it was also not overthrowing patriarchy and the way it then got institutionalized into commune structures and land reform and all of that stuff. I was always interested uh, in the um, relationship between family structure and gender inequality um, or possibilities. And so that was true of all of my work, even though it was wildly different, the different kinds of work I did. It's important, I think, to remember that in the um, early 70s, which is when grassroots feminism became this mass movement, mm -hmm. um, very early 70s, <laughs> um, it was sort of typecast as anti-family um, because a lot of feminist critiques and some of the famous and provocative um, pieces of propaganda and, and intellectual work of the time were things like why I want a wife and overturning, you know, wages for housework and um, things about uh, the clitoral and um, orgasm uh, versus the vaginal orgasm. I mean, so there was a, it was very much about personal life and the control of female sexuality and families and what were the origins. So there was a lot of work on the origins of male domination. And there were incendiary books like Shulamith Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex and things of this sort. So that was the intellectual milieu in which I was working and contributing. And so we became branded by uh, the media and ultimately it became an important piece, I'm sad to say, in the success of the new right in the backlash against feminism and, and the movements of the 60s was to portray the movements as anti-American and anti-family and as a threat basically to the society. And of course we were proud to be a threat to the society on some level, but you know we had a vision of a more egalitarian set of familial choices and all of that. So that was the milieu. And it was from that position that I was interested in the different ways that family life and intimacy have been organized, could be organized, and the implications for, not only for gender, for sexuality, for class, 
um, for race as well, because it was also, you know, the whole assault on welfare and the uh, assault on welfare mothers and all was all wrapped up in notions of proper family life, which was the proper nuclear family. And I grew up, as did most of the women and men of my cohort, in the, you know, father knows best, um, leave it to beaver period of a notion of a proper family being a male breadwinner and a female homemaker in there. 2.5. It is interesting. The, um, that generation, the baby boomers, really the people who were born into um, that family, and mm -hmm. I guess you're a, an early baby boomer, the right. baby boomers um, are the first generation to abandon that family structure in such uh, high numbers. Exactly. So that's, that was one argument some of us often made. If it was so great, why did so many of us want out of it? <laughs> so, and part of the answer was because we saw in many instances, what it meant for our mothers and, um, and their frustrations and all of that, how constraining it was. Um, but what we didn't see, and I wrote about this very early too, was the impact of our attitudes, those of us who were aspiring. I was brought up in a lower middle class, working class family, but without educated parents. And, but most of my friends later on, or the friends I wound up having, of course, came from more of the more successful versions of that family. My mother sometimes did work and was in and out of the workforce, things like that. But, um, but she was frustrated. And, um, and I think many of us didn't want those lives. Um, you know, we, the other thing was that we were the first generation of women where there was mass college education for women. It was the GI Bill and it was post-World War II, you know, so it, the, we went to college in the 60s when colleges were expanding for women. We were a minority, but we were a large minority now, very different from the historic history. And yet we weren't being prepared for, prefer, for careers, we were being prepared to be educated wives. And so it was that contradiction, I think, that led to a lot of the explosion of that cohort into being so receptive to the ideas of reforming family life. When you look at um, the the constraints of of the family structure itself, the, that that um, father knows best family, right. but also just the fact that it was so dominant, sort of a tyrannical right. concept right. of family. It seems like there's, in a way, maybe there's two dimensions of of repression that go on there. One is is what's happening in the family, and the other is that you just don't have a choice about what kind of family to live in. Oh, absolutely. And of course, it was very racist because black women couldn't live like that and, um, and never had been able to live like that. And it was really a white image of what the proper family was. And I think a white image that fed racism as well and also fed some racial resentments in both directions. So yeah, it was, um, it was a social constraint for sure, but it's a social constraint that therefore constrained a lot of the women for whom it didn't fit. What a lot of feminists of my generation didn't get is that it did fit some women. You know, we didn't think it was right for any woman. You know? <laughs> we thought it was terrible, you know, and, uh, and that everyone should, would want equality and all, and that turns out not to be true. And we also did unwittingly, I think, uh, feed into a certain, you know, I don't know, looking down on homemakers. We, 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 were very, we were not very friendly to homemakers, to women who wanted to be full-time homemakers. Uh, ironically then, um, I just sort of slightly moving chronologically, I don't know when it first occurred to you that um, we would end up having um, legal same-sex marriage, um, but the, um, 
the I guess the irony there is partly that the gay rights movement um, ends up uh, fighting for and eventually winning sort of the right to that whole thing. Well, I've written about that paradoxical role in helping them get it, even though it was not the goal I wanted them to be fighting for. In fact, there's an article, I think I published it in Social Problems at one point. So I became, um, you know, a small but significant player in the campaign for a same-sex marriage, not because that was my goal, but I was really defending their right to be parents uh, and did research that was in that service. But that got caught up into a lot of the major cases. I was an expert witness in the Canadian same-sex marriage case because of our research being criticized by the anti-same-sex marriage folks. And so I got called in and did an amicus brief and actually testified and all. And I even wrote about the irony of my having, and how I found some of the briefs in favor of same-sex marriage to be really yucky. You know, they were like so romantic about marriage and the family in that regard, and how ironic. And I was on the side of that debate with, within the uh, debates about same-sex marriage. Like, um, oh, I'm blocking right now, the trouble with normal. I was on that side of the debate that that should not be the goal, that, um, that all you're doing is you know, affirming couple privilege and, you know, discriminating against single people or against other family forms that you want to expand the field, not restrict it. But on the other hand, I feel the same way about the military. As long all of it, all institutions should be equal opportunity employers, but I didn't really want to strengthen some of those institutions. Well, it's interesting. Um, I suppose some of this appears um, just in the, um, in the decision I'm thinking of the of uh, Anthony Kennedy's decision. Right. Uh, he he the enduring bond. He I have right. a assistant here. The enduring bond two persons together can find other freedoms um, such as expression, intimacy, and spirituality. And and Scalia at the time, Anthony and Scalia mocked him for the idea that um, the bonds of marriage would be considered a source of freedom. He didn't think um, he 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 had to kind of stick up for the feminist view there in the in the debate mm -hmm. they had. That's very funny. Yeah, yeah. No, there were plenty of ironies and paradoxes and, you know, um, contradictions on both sides of that struggle. I think it's, um, you know, your, your book, Unhitched, uh, Love, mm -hmm. Marriage and Family Values from West Hollywood to Western China, um, it's published in 2011, so it's not breaking news right now, but um, I, I find it, I use it in my, um, my uh, teacher family theory class. It's very creative and really uh, sort of eye-opening to the, the, the types of families that you ended up comparing mm -hmm. um, uh, sort of around the world. And, it, and it, um, maybe you want to just talk a little bit about the, 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 how you ended up with these sort of three sets of, you have South Africa, you have West Hollywood, you have Western China, um, and, it, and it expands the horizon of what families sort of can be. Right, well, it, it was somewhat accidental. I mean, it didn't start out, I didn't conceive of it as a book initially. They were kind of three studies that um, I initially thought I was going to be doing a book about gay men and their diverse forms of intimacy and kinship. And I started that study when I was at USC in LA. So that was the West Hollywood. Of course, it's much more than West Hollywood. It was all over the Southern California region. And I purposely um, set out to um, not define what a family was and not define a sample. And, and that's something I tried to encourage my students to do as much as possible. I mean, I have, um, you know, I have respect for it, but I also have problems with a lot of the conventional sociological studies that set out to study couples or study lesbian mothers or study, you know, that's a good thing 
but it imposes certain definitions from the get-go. And I wanted to see the diverse array of ways in which gay men who were the first generation, first cohort of men who had the possibility of thinking of being out gay men and choosing or not choosing um, coupled them. It was before same-sex marriage, but I saw same-sex marriage coming and they had domestic unions already, you know, and so they could choose different forms of out family life, including parenthood. But it was took a lot of work to make those choices. So that's what made it really interesting to me. But I didn't want it to be just about couple relationships and parent-child relationships or not. I wanted it to be about the whole array of intimate forms that people would choose or not always choose, not choose, sometimes wind up in or whatever, and, and, how, and what this had to do with different forms of you know, economic, racial, whatever. So that's what got me started. The thing about imposing the categories is so important. You know, I mostly come at these from a demographic perspective. And sure. in our demographic methods, we're always fighting the last war on categories. Right. You know, so we have, we have, the, we have the, the, the household and family structure categories of the previous generation on today's survey forms. And we're going to figure out what's going on now, but we're going to use the categories we came up with uh, 20 years ago. And that's just a, a sort of axiomatic. That, well, that's a really good insight. And that's what I was feeling that, you know, just in some categories that were just taken for granted in the field, you know, the notion of an intact family, what in the world does that mean? And that was often bandied about or a broken family, you know, and that, those have particular meanings that, you know, I would define very differently. And um, there isn't one type of intact or a broken family. And, but those are heavily laden too. And even the idea of a single parent family is a complicated idea because there are so many different varieties of what counts as a single family. So um, how did you end up incorporating South Africa into this? So what happened was that I wrote a number of articles off of the LA research. Um, I published maybe two or three, I don't remember. And uh, certainly, and and, and a version of those became the first two substantive chapters of the book. But meanwhile, I had discovered South Africa as a a mind-boggling fact, which was, and I I remember it was by hearing um, Desmond Tutu's daughter speak at a family conference or something, just by chance, a throwaway thing. She was then on the, um, so this was in the 90s, and she was on the um, uh, Family Reform Commission when they were writing the new constitution for South Africa, the post-apartheid constitution. And she mentioned that they were having struggles in this um, commission um, between traditionalists who believed in, who practiced polygamy, polygyny, and uh, the drive for same-sex marriage, gay rights. And that was right when they were writing the constitution. And it became the first constitution that built in a bill of rights that prevented discrimination both against any form of sexual discrimination, gender and sexual discrimination and racial, but it built in the tension between multiculturalism and individual rights because it also provided um, rights for traditional cultural and religious practices. And those traditional cultural and religious practices were deeply patriarchal in most cases, including especially among the Zulu, the um, polygyny, including, you know, one of their presidents, Jacob Zuma, who had five wives. Um, So... Um, took another wife while he was president. So I was just fascinated by that. And it just seemed like almost a laboratory case of how do you deal with 
those absolutely hostile values and notions of um, intimacy. So I just decided I needed to learn about that. <laughs> and also by then I had decided that I, we didn't need another book on gay men because by then the field had expanded a lot and I, I didn't really think we needed another book about gay men. I mean, I thought I could say enough in the articles, but that if I could expand it by showing the range of the kinds of choices and, and what those issues raised, so I wasn't thinking of a book at that point. It was just a new research project, and I went to South Africa. Um, so uh, a little bit of that um, uh, adventure, I suppose that anthropological um, uh, gestalt of, of writing about a culture not your own. Right, right. Well, the gay male culture was a culture not my own, too. And so in that world, wasn't as exotic, certainly, you know, same language, same histor historical roots and all. But it was quite a range of men that I got to know and interview, including undocumented immigrants and men who uh, were, you know, in the military. And, you know, it was, so that was interesting. And men who lived in a trio and, you know, various things. Um, so that was outside. But yes, South Africa was far more dramatic in getting outside because, especially because there I was looking at both sides. So I actually went out to some Zulu villages and interviewed some women in and one guy in polygynous relationships. And that wasn't easy to do, but I was able to do some of it. And I interviewed uh, very prominent political leaders on all sides. I mean, I got to interview and was so, the access proved to be incredibly easy. I, you know, so different from here, but um, I was able to interview um, at least three or four members of the Supreme Court, the Constitutional Court. Huh. And they gave me an enormous amount of time and it was fascinating. But I also interviewed you know, the head of the House of Traditional Leaders, who was deeply patriarchal and hostile to feminism and to gays, to say the least, and, you know, so, and some parliamentarians, so, and gay rights activists. So it was, you know, and then just ordinary people in their families. And then, and then these white guys who were um, challenging the constitution for their right to have multiple wives that it wasn't so one of the fascinating things i immediately discovered was that polygyny is only legal in south africa um, for black men but only for only if it's part of your traditional culture so that provided a reverse racism argument for a case that i found fascinating and i actually interviewed the men and some of their wives the white women who were fighting for the right to be plural wives so I guess you do end up sort of with a tension, a possible tension in, in sort of the egalitarian impulses where one um, provides for protection of, uh, or sort of tolerance of cultural diversity, including right. possibly um, patriarchal practices. Exactly. But, but I came to come out and support, I believe we should legalize plural marriage. Um, I came out in support of that because uh, what I came to realize, so I also studied not just South Africa, but I studied the history of Mormon polygyny here and the contemporary practice of it, and I and read some of the legal debates and stuff, and, and I became convinced that um, it's completely irrational to make plural marriage illegal. Um, it's not that I think it's necessarily a great idea, but I don't know that it's any worse an idea than a patriarchal monogamous, so-called relationship. We don't punish adultery. I mean, technically some states might have it on the books, but we don't, at least in plural marriage, um, the men are willing to acknowledge and be responsible for uh, their children 
And yet we have all of these unofficial um, plural situations, including prominent politicians who have these secret love children and all that they're not required to support and, and or acknowledge, et cetera. So I began, and, there were, and then there were a lot of African-American arguments about, you know, with the male shortage and all of that, why there were some, you know, and then there were co-wives who see enormous advantages and sharing a man, whatever. So I, I believe it should be legal. So is it ironic then, I suppose, um, I don't know if I keep saying ironic, if it's the, if it's the right word. So I'm thinking of a, t- a book title that came, that came and went uh, at some point during this, which was um, New Families, No Families. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember that, yeah. Um, uh, the title just pops into my head, but if, if, we're, if we're moving the direction of um, uh, individual rights and responsibilities uh, rather than sort of a family-based system, right. Right. Um, it, that seems, you know, that seems con- conducive to the sort of um, uh, values you're talking about. On the other hand, you know, did you think you would uh, end up being a champion for uh, individualism? Well, I don't think I'm a champion for individualism. I'm a champion for social support of all family forms. And and I was, I would modify, you know, Martha Feynman, you probably know, you know, she did this stuff about the mother-child, she's a legal theorist, you know her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, I thought I didn't like the way she conceptualized it, but I agree with the idea that, at the very least, society has a um, a stake and should have a responsibility in supporting children to the utmost and their caretaking, whatever groups are willing to commit to taking care of them. And it shouldn't have a definition of what that group should be. So it should support all of those family forms. She wanted to focus on the mother-child dyad. I, I wouldn't necessarily do it that way, but there are a lot of complicated issues about, you know, father's rights when the, he doesn't know he had a child, you know, this kind of thing. Um, I would focus on the acknowledging the, the intentional family uh, of whatever sort, whether it's intergenerational, whether it's mixed gender or not, whether it's you know, I, I wouldn't care about the, you know, you run into some issues, how many parents, you know, is there a limit and all of that? And that, I don't have any simple answer to that. But, um, but I talked about poly parenting, you know, which, you know, some of it, the obvious ones were the lesbian couples and gay male couples that chose to have children together. And so the kids have four parents, but there were other forms where there were multiple mothers and various things. What I would say is that when there are adults who intentionally embrace parenthood, whether through adoption or biological means or you know, alternative reproduction, whatever, there should be forms for them to um, commit their resources and commitments to the child and to some extent to the family. And it doesn't have to be all in one household or not. In other words, so I would have an expansive way of allowing adults to commit to families, and especially when they involve dependents, um, to provide as much support as possible for the dependents and as much continuity. Inevitably, you're gonna wind up with contradictions and, and, and nightmare situations when adults fall out, right? <laughs> I mean, divorce is an issue, and you know, so when you have four, I don't know. But we have that already. I think there would be ways, and I never, you know, I think you would need legal theorists and policy wonks to help design what those things should be. But I think some of it would be easy and some of it would be really hard. I mean, some of it would be easy in terms of the level, you know, when four people set out, as some of the people I studied did, to be committed parents 
to a child they're bringing into the world, either through alternative insemination or adoption or whatever. I don't see why you couldn't recognize that as a family and have parental rights and responsibilities there. Okay, I completely agree. Um, let me um, let me switch gears uh, uh, one more time and to go back to academia a little bit. You know, it's um, I, I feel for our students now um, that in so, you know maybe it's always the case that the world seems more and more uncertain, something like that. Right. Um, uh, and I also am well, not I sure. Seem pretty <laughs> scary, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, when grad grad students especially come to us and they 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 are they're thinking about having a career, um, what do you think about um, academia or sociology as a career, especially for a feminist today? Yeah, um, I watched feminism go from being a movement to becoming a career. It we it was not a career when my generation started it. If anything, it was you know a challenge to the career. But the whole process, you know, and I actually wrote a little piece for the millennial issue of Signs. They had a symposium, and my piece was called Is Academic Feminism an Oxymoron? Hmm. Um, and I think there's a real question, you know, what's the relationship between social movements and intellectual disciplines? It's complicated. And so I watched feminism become a career, but I also watched feminism become, go from being, so I was one of the beneficiaries, ironically. Because feminism led me into an academic career, I got one of the jobs when most departments were feeling like, well, they should have one. <laughs> I really don't, you know, so I actually think I got a little boost from it. I mean, I also got a lot of disparagement and a lot of, you know, sort of skepticism, but I did, I do think I benefited on a personal level in terms of getting a tenure track position at a time when it was already very hard to get tenure track <laughs> positions. I'm a beneficiary and I do think it's gotten harder and harder. And I think now, you know, I guess maybe most departments feel, you know, they certainly feel they need a gender scholar or two, but it has a very different feel to it. Um, and I don't know how, I don't know how promising and I, you know, and it is worrisome to see the cutbacks and the attacks on intellectual freedom and, and all of that. On the other hand, I mean, I've just had a few students who've had enormous success. I don't know, one of my protégés at NYU is now at Columbia, Tay Meadow. Have you heard her name yet? Mm -hmm, sure. So she just won the distinguished, I mean, it's, it's always wonderful when your children outdo you, and uh, mine really are smarter than I ever was, and she just, she's gonna, she just won the distinguished um, sociological book award for trans kids, which was the dissertation I supervised. So that, that's very exciting. That's a great book. You know, the, the, the career difficulties and the institutional challenges aside, um, the work is great, right? If we, can, if we can make careers work doing this work, wouldn't, it be, uh, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be a great thing to be able to do? It would be great in some ways, but I really, really got turned off to what the university became. Um, at a certain point, yes, there's a lot of it that's great, but the corporatization of the university and the commodification of scholars that took place during my career, which was not there at the beginning. At the beginning, it was very patriarchal and old boys club, but most people earned about the same. There, you didn't have these super, you didn't have this trading and, you know, superstar scholars and campuses recruiting everyone away from everyone else. You had a little of that, but very little and it really escalated with the 
basic, you know, the commercialization really of the academy and the corporatization and the distance between the top and the bottom, you know, the inequality that we're seeing in society, you also saw infect the university in dramatic ways. By the end um, of my career, I began to feel that university life was not healthy for me emotionally. Um, and I don't think it's so healthy emotionally for many people. I began to feel, and I even wrote little pieces about it here and there, you know, the coin of the realm in the academy usually had been status rather than money, and that still remains true, but it got, it escalated, and then money entered the picture as well. But um, the judgments and the constant comparing of everyone and the quality, you know, the sort of assessments, I began to feel that 90% of my work was judging and being judged, not thinking and creating and educating. Think about it. I mean, between you know, you're comparing people for admissions, you're comparing people for tenure, you're comparing people for publication, you're comparing people for merit reviews, you're comparing people for grants, you're comparing people for everything. And you're being compared and constantly assessed. And there's a lot of status anxiety and a lot of, I just think it's quite unhealthy. And I really don't miss any of that. I miss some of the thrills and the um, opportunities that I had as an academic, but I, you know, I've got, I'm now pretty much a political activist, um, not on feminist issues particularly. <laughs> I'm really working more in criminal justice and immigration rights these days, huh. but, um, um, but quite seriously. And, um, and there's some of that there, but it is, there's less of it. I mean, there are other issues, but I, I don't think it's as unhealthy for me emotionally. And for example, I mean, I wrote a little piece about um, uh, when Michael Burboy was president of the ASA, there was this thing on public sociology, and then a book was appeared after, and he invited respondents, and I was one. And um, so I wrote um, something, I think it was called, If I Were the Goddess of Sociological Things. <laughs> and it was, you know, because Arundhati Roy had been one of the speakers at his meetings in that time. And, you know, I just made a whole series of modest suggestions of what I would do to revamp, not just sociology, really, the academy. But um, one of them was I'd get rid of the rank of associate professor. Hmm. What does that serve? Okay. You know, there's no value in that, in that position. All it does is, make, you know, you're just endlessly demanding these reviews and outside reviews. And the fact is, if you deny someone promotion of full, as I saw happen a number of times, then you make it more likely you're stuck with them because they're not going to get a job anywhere else. And, and you just humiliate them. They're already tenured. So what is the point? Yeah, I suppose if you take apart a lot of our, um, a lot of our inherited uh, procedures and status uh, uh, you know, mechanisms, you could find a uh, right. rationale not so great. Yeah, and the whole merit review system, I don't think it does anything to enhance intellectual life. I think it encourages the worst intellectual impulses. And so does this endless, you know, emphasis on public. I mean, I, so one of my modest suggestions was there should be a moratorium that every third year or something, I don't remember what I said, you weren't allowed to publish. <laughs> and I actually mean it. I mean, in other words, because I wanted people to take the chances of, you know, like switching from gay men to South Africa, um, which is a huge risk. You know, you're a neophyte in a field and all of that. You know, if you want to have a steady stream of publications, you just keep boring in your same little tunnel. So if you think about the parts of the work that you love, which was, I think you said, thinking, creating, and teaching. Right. Um, I'm not sure 
that we have come up with a better way to um, to make that your vocation, um, well, which is frustrating. some reform. In other words, get rid of some of these unnecessary status distinctions. And um, one of the things that I don't know how that started or what could be done about it, but you know, the thing of you need to get an outside offer to advance in your own place. Um, so that I think is deeply destructive to departments. And it leads to people leaving who didn't always necessarily want to leave. And it also leads to resentments and all of that. But certainly, you could get rid of associate professor. You could do some of the things I suggested. You know, I suggested that people should, well, first of all, that you should have a global partner. You could align with a department somewhere else and have ongoing exchanges. I think you should have interdisciplinary exchanges. I think you should have be required to change your office um, to live in a different discipline for every now and then so that you would have different conversations. And because where you are physically structures a lot of who you see and who you interact with. And anyway, I had a whole bunch of things like that. <laughs> so, um, and I do think it would make life better. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the, we're talking about enormous powers and pressures. You know, it's not easy to make change. Okay. And there always are unintended consequences. Uh, I suppose this is fascinating, could go on and on, but it's been about an hour and we should probably wrap up. No, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably more than you need to know about my, you know, crotchety views on everything. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful and I have had a great time um, in this conversation. So I hope we get a chance to talk more. Uh, look forward to what the uh, people who listen to this might think. And I uh, uh, think we have a lot of, uh, a lot to chew on from this conversation. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. You're a great interviewer. That was really good. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Judith Stacy of New York University and our guest host, Philip Cohen from the University of Maryland, College Park. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash Annex, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. Thanks for listening.